Uh, can we have confidence? Can we have confidence to plant and grow churches in 21st century Europe? Can the gospel cut it in this kind of new paganism, if you like, of, of post-Christian Europe? That's a, that's a kind of question we've been trying to answer in this little series uh, in the book of Acts, isn't it? And I, I think it's a pretty relevant question to ask, of course, because we might well look around us, you know, kind of a, a society around us and think, no, <laughs> you know, it doesn't really look like the gospel can cut it in, in post-Christian Europe. In fact, it looks like the gospel is, is in retreat uh, here in Europe. There, there are fewer churches, even in the, the big cities. You know, there are, there are many more places like, like the, the sort of rural communities that we live in or, or deprived communities that are actually increasingly becoming kind of gospel-free zones. And, and so, you know, having the discussions that we've been having here at Grace Church that we've started having about the possibility of planting a new church ourselves, something like that might seem like madness, you know, because, of course, the island is, is, is one of those places, isn't it, where access to the gospel is declining, not advancing. And, and so calling people to think and pray about things as, as, as major as relocating to another island town in order to pioneer a new church plant, that's, that kind of thing might seem foolhardy. Surely now's not the time for gospel advance, but kind of for gospel consolidation, you know, it's not a time for risky gospel ventures. It's a time to kind of hunker down in the Grace Church bunker, if you like, sort of let the post-Christian storm rage around us, uh, that kind of thing. I think we see um, here in Acts our fears challenged and our gospel confidence lifted as we read these chapters, don't we? Um, the book of Acts, uh, you'll, you'll probably know by now, um, uh, begins with a mission and a promise, doesn't it? In, in chapter 1, verse 8, in fact, we read it in the, um, the kids thing, uh, um, the Bible bite there earlier on. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, that's the promise, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the mission. So the mission is to be his witnesses, to spread the word of the gospel, and not just where they are already in Jerusalem, but outwards from where they are until the ends of the earth are reached. And the promise is that they won't be alone in doing that, but they'll be empowered by God's Spirit, whom Christ is sending um, for that very purpose. And, and the rest of the book shows how the early church gets on with the mission by the power of the Spirit. And specifically, we've seen in these kind of chapters 16 to 18 that we've been studying, how the mission gets worked out as God directs Paul's uh, second missionary journey away from, from first century Asia, Asia Minor, into first century Europe. Um, someone very wisely uh, suggested to me the other week that it might be helpful to show a map of, of uh, Paul's five-city tour so uh, here we are, there's a, there's a, a little bit of a map, and, and Paul's, Paul is on his second gospel preaching tour, that's the big green line around there, um, which began uh, here in Antioch, look, um, uh, there, um, and, and then it headed through the, the regions of Cilicia and Galatia towards the port city of Troas there that, that you, can, uh, you can see just outside the box 
um, where, if, if you remember, um, God directed Paul through that famous Macedonian call of chapter 16 away from the provinces of, uh, provinces of Asia, where they were going, to bring the gospel to what is now mainland Europe. So that's the, the five-city tour there is sort of inside the, the box that I've uh, I've drawn on the map. So he visits Philippi. We've seen this, haven't we? He visits Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And then he goes down to, to Athens, uh, down uh, there, and then to where we are today in Corinth. Before he then heads home via Ephesus, uh, just on the other side. Oh, hello. I didn't mean to do that. Um, Ephesus there. And I'm going to give us a bonus. Uh, uh, we'll have a bonus episode in, in, um, in, in Ephesus uh, on, on his way home because I think that'll be quite instructive for us. But what have we seen him doing um, on, on this European tour? What, what's he been doing? Well, he's been preaching the gospel and planting churches, hasn't he? That's what he's been doing. Um, and, and actually, that's just like that through the rest of the book too. God's word proclaimed by God's people in the power of God's spirit results in churches being planted and and growing. And how is that gospel proclaimed? We've seen that as well. Um, We saw it in chapter 17. Paul preaches the gospel by explaining the Bible. So as week by week, he, he opens up, or sometimes day by day, he opens up various passages of Scripture and explains, to, explains from them and reasons from them and shows and proves from the, the text of the, the, the Bible itself the necessity of the death and the resurrection of the Christ and that Jesus is the Christ. And, and, and as we've seen that happening in, in first century Europe over the last few weeks, we've noted, haven't we, the striking similarity between their Europe and our Europe, between pre-Christian Europe and post-Christian Europe, um, which I think has strengthened our confidence that the gospel is still the power of God for salvation, no matter what culture it's proclaimed into. It tells us that our Europe, just like their Europe, is a Europe in which people will turn to Christ not just one or two people, but many people. We've seen that there's flexibility in how that gospel is proclaimed. Paul adapts to the various cultural contexts he finds himself in. But nevertheless, in essence, his basic method and message remain the same. He preaches the gospel by explaining the Bible. Because God's word, proclaimed by God's people in the power of God's spirit, inevitably results in churches being planted and grown as people come to Christ. And as we move into kind of chapters 18, 19 now, we're going to find more of the same. But what I'd like us to particularly notice in these chapters is that um, the gospel growth that we see is a two-part thing, if you like. It happens as we do our part and as God does his part. So kind of look out for that in, in the chapters, for what Paul and the others are doing and what God does. Um, and how that brings about the growth of the gospel in Europe. And the first thing I'd love us to notice, just in verse 1, is that Paul chooses to do what's best for the spread of the gospel. That's his part. He does what's best for the spread of the gospel. Have a look at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And and the point here, I think, is simply that, and and we've noticed this through the previous chapters too, is that Paul seems to move quite purposefully, quite intentionally, from one place to the next. 
In other words, he's, he's intentional about where he's going next. He's probably picked some of these places um, on his tour because they've had Jewish synagogues in them, which has given him a, a natural opening for the, for the gospel. But he seems to have picked other places because they've either got kind of large population centers, in other words, they're places where people are, um, or because they've been key sort of regional towns. In other words, his, his concern has been to establish the gospel in what you might call a, a, a kind of like a regional center or a regional hub um, from, from which an established uh, local church could then start to reach out to the rest of the surrounding area, preaching the gospel and, and planting more churches. Uh, for example, in verse 1 reminds us that the last stop on his tour was Athens. Um, if you remember, he debated the, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers um, it, it, at the Areopagus. Um, I, 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 I'm not sure that's why he went, though, um, you know, as though it was somehow strategic for him to win the cultural elites in, uh, for Christ. Um, I, I mean, that the, the height of Athens' influence as a kind of seat of learning was actually about 500 years before Paul went there. So although it was a historically significant city, it, it certainly wasn't that influential in, in Paul's day. Um, and, and having left there, he then goes to Corinth, verse 1, which was a massive city. It was a key trading center. It was a tourist center as well. So definitely a place to plant a church in order to reach people. Um, you know, people either living there or lots of people traveling through there, heading on somewhere else. Um, but again, I don't think he's there to win sort of cultural influences of his day. <laughs> in, in fact, you might remember when he writes to the church in Corinth uh, a, a bit later on, he, he specifically says of the church in, in 1 Corinthians 1.26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You know, there might have been the odd one who was. You know, the old one of the, of the elites of the city. But his boast in this letter uh, is that m- most of those reached by the gospel were the city's nobodies. You know, not, not their elites, not, their, not, their, not the influential, the, the, the great and the good. His, his strategy, if you want to call it that, was not so much to get the gospel to the great and the good. You know, in, in the hope that it might trickle down to the rest. But, but rather, although he does seem to be intentional about choosing where to go... It's more on the basis of where he can reach people and where he can get a hearing for the gospel, I think. Uh, in, in fact, when he came to Europe, to, 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 to Macedonia, do you remember that? He, he, he didn't head straight to Thessalonica, which was the, the regional capital. He actually went first to the smaller and actually the harder to get to uh, town of Philippi. Um, on his first missionary journey, when he went to Cyprus, he didn't head straight for Paphos, which was the, uh, the capital, but he went to some smaller places first. In Asia Minor, he actually bypassed some of the big cities in, in Pamphylia, places like that, in order to reach the, the small towns in, in the region of Galatia. In other words, it's not simply the size of the place that makes it strategic for Paul. Um, it's certainly not how influential a place it is. I, I think he just seems to go to sort of geographically adjacent areas to places where people are and where gospel openings might be found. Um, uh, so what, is it, what might that mean for us today? You know, how, where should we go and plant churches, for, for example? There's no doubt we need to plant churches where there are people. You know? and, and so there's no doubt that cities need more churches than villages do because more people live in cities than, than live in villages. I, I guess that's true enough. But actually, more importantly than that... That, that what gospel needs there are in a region would seem to be significant as well, um, as well as where we have an opportunity. 
And, and yes, that will lead us to want to plant churches in big, important cities, of course. But actually, it should also lead us to want to plant in, in deprived communities and in seaside towns and in rural centres and, and other places where there are also people whom God cares about who are underserved with, with gospel churches. That's one of the reasons we thought about the town of Ventnor as a possibility, because there's a, there's a whole part of the South White down there that, that points into that town of Ventnor with actually very little gospel work going on there at the moment. So could there be an opportunity there? Yes, there are many people in our, in our great cities who, who need to hear the gospel, but there are also 12 million people who live in rural Britain and, and with home working, I, I think now a growing trend, we, that may be set to increase significantly. And yet churches in rural Britain are in decline, aren't they? That's as true on the island, of course, as it is in, in other areas of the country where we've got many church buildings, but very few places where the gospel can be clearly heard. Um, and I, I think one of the big challenges that faces us in the UK church at the moment is for us to stop simply thinking in terms of what is good for me, what is best for me, but in terms of what is good for the gospel, what's best for the gospel. Because in a nutshell, I think what's driving Paul's decisions here about where to preach the gospel and plant churches is what is best for the growth and spread of the gospel, not what is best for him. And friends, it would be a great question to ask ourselves, wouldn't it, to, to pray through ourselves when, when we think about our career choices when we think about our house moves when we think about our resources of time and money and energy and so on can i encourage us not simply to think in terms of what's best for us but what's best for the growth and spread of the gospel i think that's what paul's doing here um, so much for paul's part he's doing what's best for the growth for the spread and the growth of the gospel but what's god doing in Corinth. What's, what's God's part here? I think the first thing we see God doing here, look in verses 2 and f- two to 5, is he's providing the resources that gospel ministry needs. Ha- have a look at verse 1 again. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. Um, I, I, I wonder what it must be like to go to a new town and realize that you are the only Christian who lives there. You know, maybe we can get an idea for that if, if we're, you know, maybe we're the only Christian in our workplace or in our class at school or, or in our family or in our circle of friends. That can be quite isolating, can't it? Quite lonely. Uh, it reminded me of, of, uh, of my friends James and Caroline Steer, some of you, you know them, um, who, who were missionaries in, in Thailand. They moved to the town, I remember a few years ago, they moved to the town of Bang Plamar, where they were the only Christians in what was effectively a kind of small city. And so they experienced not only the, the isolation of being in a different culture, but also of having no other Christians around them. I think that would make us feel very isolated, wouldn't it? Quite, quite homesick, quite lonely. I'm sure that's how Paul must have felt when he arrives here in Corinth. He's come to preach the gospel and plant a church, but he's hundreds of miles away from the nearest Christian brothers and sisters. I think that's massively isolating. But unbeknown to Paul... What we see God doing here is arranging for two other Christians to join him. Isn't that great? 
And not only are they Christians, but they're fellow Jews. And not only are they fellow Jews, but they're fellow tent makers. That's brilliant, isn't it? What a, what a provision for Paul in, in his ministry. And, and this couple have arrived in Corinth because, look, verse 2, Claudius, the, the emperor in, in Rome, was in the process of expelling all the Jews from Rome where they had been. And so you can imagine, can't you, the scene a few days earlier as Priscilla and Aquila are being thrown out of their home in Rome and they're thinking to themselves, Lord, what are you doing? Why is this happening? Why don't you stop this? But what we now see is that God has a bigger picture in in view, doesn't he? He's working towards the bigger purpose of getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. And what seems to be a mishap, Lord, what are you doing? is actually God's masterstroke in order to resource the gospel work in Corinth. And you can imagine the encouragement that this is to Paul, can't you? God has just provided Paul with two great gospel partners to join him in the work. It's very hard, isn't it, to be a Christian on your own. It's very hard to reach out to others with the gospel when you've got no support and encouragement, which, of course, is why God puts us in local churches, isn't it? So, so that we can do it as gospel partners together. And friends, it, it's a precious thing, you know. If, if you're alone for much of the week, you know, seeking to be a witness for the gospel in your workplace or your class or among your friends or your neighbours, that's lonely work very often, isn't it? How brilliant to be able to gather together like we are this morning with our gospel partners and be encouraged and built up and supported in that task. Friends, do treasure it, won't you? And, and do guard it. Don't, don't neglect it. Because the, the local church family is the, is the spiritual base from which gospel ministry takes place. So we need to be looking to strengthen one another when we meet together. And, and, and actually to be welcoming those who join us. Imagine you know, somebody a, a bit like Paul here who's, who's come to the island or moved into the area, wants to serve the gospel in the area. How tragic it would be if they didn't find a welcome if they didn't find deep friendship and partnership in the gospel, as, as, as Paul does here. So God resources the gospel ministry in Corinth with two more people. Brilliant. But not only does that provide people, it provides money. See, Paul, by, by background, he was a, a Jewish rabbi, a teacher, um, and they usually had second trades as well, and Paul's was as a tent maker. And, and that meant that in, in some of the places that he he visited on his, his missionary journeys, he could do some tent-making work, um, sort of to support himself so that he could remain and, and keep preaching the, the, the gospel. It was a bit of a side hustle for him while he was there. Uh, so uh, that, kind of, that kind of part-time ministry, if you like, is, is often the only option in, in lots of contexts. But of course, time is money, isn't it? So if a gospel minister can be freed up from having to earn his living so that he can give himself full time to the work of the gospel, well then, a gospel work can move forward, can't it, more, more quickly. And that's what happens, look, in verse 5 in, in the next verse. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testing, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So, so Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, um, and, and we know from 2, 2 Corinthians 11 that, that uh, Paul received financial support from the Macedonian churches. So it's likely that the arrival of Silas and Timothy here is also the arrival of some much-needed finances so that Paul can give himself fully 
to being occupied by the word. So we can see God at work in Corinth, can't we? He's providing gospel partners for Paul to work with and to provide financial resources to enable him to devote himself fully to gospel ministry so that the gospel progress can move forward more quickly. And I guess it's a reminder to us, isn't it, that that supporting the church with our money is a key way in which we use what God has given us, not just for ourselves, but for the growth of the gospel. It's a reminder there. I think it's also a reminder for guys like me and Ollie and and others who are the the recipients of people's giving to the work of the gospel that we want to be be worthy, as it were, of that support by using the time that that gives us well for, for gospel ministry. So as Paul is choosing to do what's best for the spread of the gospel, so God is providing the resources that gospel ministry needs. Um, But then also, look at verses 6 to 8, because I I think the other thing that God is doing here, this is great, he's using the rejection of the gospel by some to provide a hearing of the gospel to others. Uh, Have a a look with me at verse 6. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Do you see what he does? It's actually a repeated pattern in the book of Acts. He goes first to the Jews in in the synagogues, in the cities that he visits, if there is one. But when, as as a group, uh, uh, at least through the the leadership of the, the synagogue, when they, when they uh, as a group, reject him, shut the door on Paul, well, Paul accepts that and he uses it as a cue to move on and find where the Lord is opening the, the doors, the, the hearts. And, and so, verse 7, and he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. At Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And and one thing I think we learn here is that we are responsible for what we do with the gospel, whether we share it or not, that's our responsibility, but we're not responsible for what other people then do with the gospel. In other words, whether they accept Jesus or not. You see, that's why Paul is able to say in verse 6, your blood be on your own heads. I'm, I'm innocent. I'm free from any responsibility. Friends, we are not responsible for how people respond to the gospel. That's God's work. It's not ours. And sadly, there will be occasions, and there's one such here, when people will just firmly shut the door, at least for now. They won't want to talk about it. They won't want to read anything about it. They won't want to be invited to anything. It's just a closed door. And when that happens to to Paul here, he does move on. Verse 6, from now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. In other words, he takes that as a cue to move on and find others who will respond to the gospel. And and God graciously points Paul to others as, as, as one door is closed. So God uses that to open another door. And in our sharing of Christ too, we need to be looking for where God is at work. Opening and closing, if you like, doors of opportunity. But friends, notice that although he does move on from from talking with these Jews as as a group in the synagogue, for the time being at least, he absolutely doesn't give up 
on them as individuals. Right? He doesn't say, I'm going to the Gentiles now and I'm never coming back. You guys have blown it. He doesn't say that. Because look at what happens in verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So the fact that as a group, these Jews in the synagogue had shut the door on Paul and and, and he'd moved on, actually had the effect of causing the leader of them, (laughs) Crispus, to break ranks, come to the next door house where Paul was preaching. Isn't that great? You see, he wanted to hear more. And Paul gave him more. That the Jews as a group may have rejected the gospel and shut the door on Paul, but Paul never gave up on individuals. And, and the very person who seemed, you know, humanly speaking, to be the least likely candidate to become a Christian, you know, the leader of the synagogue, came to faith in Christ. And, and the lesson here seems to be never give up on anyone. Even if the door seems to have been shut for years, and even if they've never wanted to talk, if never wanted you to talk to them about the Lord Jesus, don't give up. If if there's a group, maybe a group of friends at school, or maybe a group of work colleagues, or and, and as a group they give you nothing but a hard time, and they're totally negative about the gospel. Don't assume that God doesn't have someone in that group that He is at work in. And will bring to faith in him. Try and avoid, I think, the wrong thinking that talks about likely and unlikely people to come to faith in Christ. Because the reality is that no one will come to faith in Christ unless God is at work in them. But that with God at work in them, anyone can come to faith in Christ. People come to faith in Christ because God's Spirit is lovingly at work to overcome their resistance. And friends, there are no degrees of difficulty with God. And and maybe that's no more clearly seen than in the the kind of the irony of this passage, where you've you've got the Apostle Paul, haven't you? Remember him? The Apostle Paul, who had been a cruel persecutor of the church, but was then brought by God to saving faith now himself leading Crispus to faith in Christ. Crispus, the leader of the Jewish synagogue that has just closed the door on the proclamation of the gospel. Could there be two less likely candidates to come to faith in Christ than Paul and Crispus? And and yet here they are. Friends, as we choose to do what's best for the spread of the gospel, so God provides the resources that gospel ministry needs, And as we proclaim that gospel, he even uses the rejection of the gospel by some to give an opportunity to hear the gospel to others. And then lastly, look, verses 9 to 17. Here's one more thing that God is going to do as we choose to do what's best for the spread of the gospel. And that is that he's going to bring to faith in him many more people that he has chosen. Have a look at verse 9 with me. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people, sorry, I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So we can 
see here that with his, with his small team in, in this huge pagan city, okay, that's full of opposition to the gospel, Paul is scared, isn't he? Paul's scared of exactly the same things that we get scared of when it comes to speaking to people about Jesus. He's scared that it's going to lead to opposition, and, and he's scared that nothing will happen, you know, that no one will come to faith. But Paul is told, verse 9, don't be afraid and don't be silent. In other words, don't be afraid and keep on preaching the gospel. So, so why is he not to give up but to keep sharing Christ with people? Well, because, verse 10, I have many in this city who are my people. And, and, and God doesn't mean by that he's already got many Christians in the city. We, we can see that isn't true. There weren't any. Wasn't, there wasn't, there's no church in the city. No, what he means is there are many in the city who don't trust in me yet, who don't even know who I am yet, but who I've chosen to bring to faith in, in me, whom I will bring to faith in me as you, Paul, share the gospel in this city. In other words, there are people in this city whom God has chosen for salvation. And, and, and do you see the implication of that? If, if you were to walk into your, your workplace or into your school or down your street and think that it was down to you to persuade all these people that Jesus is the, is the rightful ruler of the world, that he died to save us from our rejection of him, that, that we need to turn away from living for ourselves and accept him as our re- rescuer and our ruler, which, by the way, he does say. He says to all of us. But, but if we thought that people trusting in Christ to save them was all down to us, that would be an unbearable burden, wouldn't it? But God says here, It doesn't depend on us. It ultimately depends on God. I have many in this city who are my people. And of course, Paul doesn't know who they are. He just preaches the gospel to anyone who will listen, just like we do. But friends, the point is that they are there. And so as the gospel is proclaimed to all, yes, some will reject it, but others will respond to it because God has his people people that he's set his saving love upon, people that he will bring to faith in Christ as we share the gospel with all. Can you see how that addresses the fear that Paul has, the fear we often have, that people won't get saved as we share Christ with them? Yes, they will, because God has his people. And not just there in Corinth, but here in Ride, and down in Ventnor and across the island and in the community that you live in. People that God will bring to faith as we speak the gospel to them. He he will. And and to the other fear that Paul expresses here, the fear of opposition as we share Christ, Paul doesn't say in verse 10, uh, no one will attack you. In fact, that's precisely what does happen in in verse 12. No, what God says is no one will attack you to harm you. So it's, it's not a promise to be delivered from trouble. It's a promise that God will be with him through the trouble. And in this case, Paul is given assurance that although he may be attacked, he won't be harmed. Now, Paul had been harmed in the past, but this time he's assured that he won't be because God's got work for him still to do here. And and we can see, can't we, how these assurances from God strengthen Paul not to give up, not to go somewhere else, 
but to carry on proclaiming the gospel in Corinth for another year and a half. (laughs) Do you see God strengthening Paul for the the patient, long-term commitment to an area to see the gospel grow there as Christ is, is proclaimed? Now, we we see, of course, that attack that Paul was scared of eventually comes. Look, you can see it in verse 12. Uh, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So so the opposition to the gospel that that we see right through the the book of Acts is, is normal, it's here in Corinth as well. And, and Roman law actually was very intolerant of non-Roman religions. Um, but, but it tolerated Judaism. Um, because Judaism, A, it was an ancient religion. And B, it was a moral one. So it helped the Romans keep the peace. So they tolerated Judaism. And, and what these Jews are effectively saying to Gallio in verse 13 is, you Romans, you officially tolerate us by, by, uh, by um, uh, uh, tolerate us living by our law, our scriptures. But this guy, Paul, is twisting that law uh, such that it's not really Judaism at all. So don't tolerate him like you tolerate us, Gallio, because he needs to be got rid of. So they're, they're trying to help bring a case against him to the, to the Roman proconsul. But just as Paul is about to open his mouth, presumably to defend himself, actually the proconsul himself speaks in, in verse 14. Uh, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. So do you, do you see what happened? Gallio is basically saying there's no crime going on here. You know, if you want to argue the semantics and the finer points of your law, well, that's your problem. Don't involve me. Now, of course, there are huge differences between the message that Paul was preaching and that which Judaism taught. That's why the Jews wanted rid of Paul. But Gallio couldn't see that. He, he just thought what Paul was preaching was kind of a variation of Judaism. So he wasn't interested in their case. He threw it out. And, and of course, whatever you might think of his judgment there, the result was that the church's freedom to keep proclaiming the gospel was protected, wasn't it? Actually, for some time, and, and not only in Corinth. So what do we see there? We see God is at work to protect gospel opportunities. Why? Well, because he has his people in Corinth. And he will bring them through to faith in Christ as the gospel is proclaimed to them. I guess one thing we specifically see here is that sometimes God protects gospel freedoms through legal provision. That's what's going on here, isn't it, in in Corinth? And friends, we in this country, we've enjoyed centuries of legal provision to proclaim the gospel and to live our lives in consistency with it. Some of that is under attack at the moment. You know, large parts of the culture are becoming increasingly intolerant of, of Christian teaching. And so it's going to be increasingly the case, I think, that we'll have to fight to protect gospel freedoms that we've previously taken for granted. You know, opposition to the gospel is a reality. But frankly, I don't think we ought to worry about that too much, you know. Because what we see here is hugely encouraging, isn't it? Because as we choose to do what's best for the spread of the gospel... Friends, God is at work. He's at work to provide the resources that gospel ministry needs. 
He's at work to use even people's rejection of the gospel to give others a hearing of it. He's at work to protect gospel opportunities. And he's at work to bring to faith in him many more people that he's chosen. And friends, it seems to me that should give us great encouragement to pursue gospel advancement, not settle for gospel decline. It should encourage us towards risky gospel ventures, not away from them. It should encourage us to keep pressing ahead in gospel ministry and advancing into new and neglected places with the gospel. Because as we choose to do what's best for the advance and spread of the gospel, so we can trust God to be at work because he has many here who are his people. Can we pray to him about that? Let's do that. Father, thank you so much for the encouragements of this chapter. Um, thank, you, thank you for reminding us that although opposition to the gospel is a reality, yet you are at work. You're at work to build your church and bring people to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. Please may our confidence in you be reignited. Please may it lead us as individuals and as a church to choose to do what's best for the growth and spread of the gospel. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.